You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. So we have been camping for the past, what, seven days now? Yeah, long long camping trip you've been on. No one knows. Time time is different out in the woods, Kirk. It all flows together. So I, I've been driving back every time we do a podcast, either to record it or to edit it or to do a big work day of coaching. We are sharing a camper with my wife's parents. And mm-hmm. there is one standalone rule of the camper. It's no pooping in the toilet. <laughs> you can pee in it, but you got to go somewhere else to poop. Fair. It's just, that is Greg's rule and you listen to it. My mother-in-law, every single time we go up there, leads with, now you know, we don't go number two in the toilet. (laughs) Yep, Marilyn, I got it. I got it. (laughs) So throughout this trip, there have been streaks appearing on the toilet. Everyone slipped up like once or twice. Like every time Mira has to go to the bathroom, she's like, oh, don't worry, it's just pee. And then she'll go, oh, I'm pooping. (laughs) It's like, oh, no, no. (laughs) And he, he's always like, you know what, if it happens, it happens. You know, we, we are hooked up. To, they've got a, the hook up there so they can just, you know, flush the system mm-hmm. and whatnot. But we try to avoid it. So I know she's done it a couple times. And I think Ayla did it once. But like Brayden hasn't. Lisa hasn't. I haven't. Mm-hmm. But it just keeps happening. And it keeps like reeking up the whole camper. And the other day around the fire, she's like, oh, yeah, I've been pooping. My mother-in-law. No. Yeah. Wait, and everyone that- loses like, mom. You you are half the reason that we we don't like you and what I didn't know that was a rule and she's she's claiming ignorance like she had no idea and her husband's like her great Greg is my father in law he's like that 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 is absolutely our rule she said well I just didn't know about that it turns out it was it was her the whole time and then everybody admits to it Lisa's like yeah I, I did a couple times and and I was the only one who had it so you know what I did last night what did you do Brad? I pooped in the camper. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. Just despite everyone. Good job. And did it feel better than pooping in the out the outhouse? No, I was guilt ridden. I was flushing like every three seconds just to keep to keep things from getting too bad. So really you're probably like, oh Kirk, we should record a podcast today, but really you want to make the drive home so you can poop in a toilet. Well, we're we're at a KOA. Mm, those are those are nice. Those are those are nice. They're nice accommodations. Yeah, they have two different bathroom facilities on the grounds, and one of them is probably only fifty meters away, fifty yards for Americans. So it's not bad, but it was nighttime, and I thought I'm not doing it. If everyone else has done it, I'm getting mine. There's still nothing like your home bathroom, though. Feels nothing. like home. Yeah, nothing. I, I, not to get. I bet you you unload before you head back to the campground bracket just to. Me. I'm one of those people that goes like four or five times a day. Yeah. You know, there's a rule. I guess you're using bathrooms. Um, didn't plan to start this talking about pooping. But uh, if you're in the woods, if you're a camper, do you know that it is very frowned upon to leave like a surface poop? Like yeah, you got to bury it every time. That's like woods ethics 101 when you're doing your hiking, when you're doing everything, either take a stick, bring a little, a lot of people bring a little mini shovel so they can undo it, open up a little hole, cover it. You don't want to see little white fluffs of toilet paper and human poop around. So mm-hmm. for you guys out on the trails, which I know there's a lot of you out there, 
got to bury that. You got to be kind to your next person coming down the trail. Now we've had requests for an entire feces episode of all like running poop stories. And I'm not against it. I'm feeling like you could probably come up with quite a few if you're going four to five times a day. But before we go there, we're not yes. doing it today. I do have a question. Do you bury yours on the trail during a run? Uh, luckily, you know, I used to have issues with that. I have been pretty lucky in the last few years, not dealing with it, but I do the half-ass attempt to like kick leaves and sticks over it. So nobody could know what happened there. Um, but taking a break in the middle of a run to dig a hole with a stick and cover it back up is, uh, is not something I take the time to do. So I'm not following the rules of the woods, but I am hiding it if necessary. Are you? I'm not digging it. No. Because yeah. there's no, I can't dig a hole in time to contain what's happening on a run. Like, there's a reason you're pooping during a run. <laughs> it's not because, oh, you know, now's a good time. It's like the enemy's at the gates and the gates are coming down. But I almost feel like it's worse to kick leaves over it. Because somebody could accidentally stumble upon it? Yep. And that that's that's like setting a trap. I think the visual appeal of white toilet paper or a ripped up t-shirt or an old sock sitting in the woods that you've used to wipe is more off-putting. I'd rather take the risk. I, br I bring the sock out with me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But get off the trail like 20 yards. Do yeah. you go back okay. to go back to life? That's what I think. I mean, if you're, if you're so desperate, you're dropping trowel, like a step off the trail, then maybe you want to put a little red flag there. So people know to avoid it. But <laughs> other than that, I think we're okay. Which seamlessly brings us to the conclusion of our things. The pros do series. So, see, that was a very smooth transition. There's no <laughs> correlation here. Pros invest in their bodies. Now, Throughout this episode and throughout the preceding episodes, I bet there are a lot of people who are professional in our own sport who are thinking, it's kind of nonsense. I don't really do this. Well, I think you might have just answered your own question. The top-end Olympians do all of this. The top-end professional athletes all do this. There are levels to professionalism. Mm -hmm. And I think the greatest example is to look at the Lakers right now or the Cavaliers of the last few years. You have two professional basketball players who are famous millionaires, multimillionaires, and NBA champions with J.R. Smith and LeBron James. And they are both paid professionals. And yet one is a professional of the highest order and the other one's a professional basketball player. J.R. Smith there are constant stories of how he is out all night the day before games, drinking, smoking. He doesn't take his body seriously, but he's so ungodly talented that he's been able to exist at the pro level for a decade plus. Mm -hmm. LeBron James is kind of the archetype for this mindset. And for this episode, he is famous for he sets aside a million dollars every year for self-care. He spends a million dollars on his body every single year because he knows that it will pay off with a long career. Mm. Now, we don't all have the luxury of dropping mills, but no. we have potentially the luxury of dropping emotional energy, time, mm -hmm. uh, a version of that. I will tell you amongst myself, comparatively, and you too, and again, we are not professionals. We have, we have jobs that pay the bills by not being a professional athlete. However, um, I think the most I invest into is like recovery, supplementation, and rehab, probably mm -hmm. more than I spend on my shoes, on my gear, all of that combined. I can honestly say that I invest more there than I do in other ways as an athlete. And I'm not mistaken, but you've put quite a bit of, let's just talk finances, into your rehab and getting healthy. 
-hmm. So you're, you're doing the same thing in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I am. And, and I do just want to drive home that fact that there are levels to professionalism. Yeah. If someone says, well, Ryan Woods doesn't stretch or (laughs) Ryan Atkins doesn't do cryotherapy or, you know, Ian Hosick doesn't do cupping. Well, that's okay. Everyone has their own level of what they do for themselves. Old man Woodley does stretch, by the way. Right. I'm just using names. I wasn't actually applying that to them. A, we don't actually know what they do behind closed doors. And B, even if you know a pro who doesn't do this, there are levels to professionalism. And we are speaking to the highest order of professionalism. So without any further like preamble here, pros invest in their bodies. And there are, there's three ways, major ways pros do that. The first is with what they do prior to workout, prehab, prevention of injury, taking care of their body before anything goes wrong. The second is that they take care of their body after every workout, recovery and rehab. And then the third is in the mind game, their headspace. Real true professionals take care of their mind with the same level, if not more, than they take care of their physical bodies. You know, and I think I want to talk about those in order um, because it makes sense to the, the prehab thing is probably where most everyday athletes miss the mark. It's self-admittedly where I miss the mark. Maybe now because you've been dealing with these stupid knees, maybe it won't be where you miss the mark now. That's the hope, right? It is the hope. But foreseeing what future issues could pop up and then addressing them before they even get started. Like, what's the best way to prevent a heart attack? Well, don't eat like shit on a regular basis and work out. That would be considered prehab. Rehab would be like, shit, I had the heart attack and now I'm trying to, you know, clean up after the mess I've made. Well, what's the easiest way not to ever have the heart attack? Live a healthier lifestyle, Mm -hmm. correct? And the same thing goes with injuries and chronic injuries and staying healthy and then consistent training. And, you know, you're, you're listening to two guys who are out right now. And so I would say we would, we would need to take some lessons ourselves in this a little bit, wouldn't we, Bracken? You self-admittedly aren't the greatest about mobility work when you're in a big training block. Correct. Correct. For example, I am not the best about doing my rehab exercises on my left leg, which are annoying and kind of painful and not satisfying. And I tend to skimp on them. I also am not great at mobility work uh, and working out those areas regularly that I know could potentially flare up in the future, although they are not now. So um, I couldn't agree more with the fact that that's probably where the pros are beating us all. Yeah. So what are, what are they doing? What are, what are pros doing for, for prehab? Well, my sister, the, the basketball player, she had this business mentor when she was at UW-Green Bay, and he always told her, true leaders, true greatness sees around corners. They don't mm. get surprised by the corner. And I think that applies to what pros do with prehab. A lot of us react to what has happened to us. We are reactive. We say, well, what injuries have got me in the past? Or what obstacles have got me in the past? Or what what weakness in a race got me in the past? And we work on those and it may never get you again, or you, it may, depending on how well you work on it. But then the next one surprises us. Where mm-hmm. true professionals identify every possible thing that could go wrong and they nail it so that it doesn't ever go wrong. So what would that look like then if, a prehab, for example, I mentioned a couple of things mm-hmm. like mobility work, or if you know you have specific imbalances to maybe correct those in the strength or the weight room, for example, and things like that. But like, how would somebody go like about that? Like, what does prehab even even mean? 
Well, from the running perspective, since this is the running podcast that we're working on here, mm-hmm. they are all pros always are targeting your points of impact, your points of motion, and the typical areas where runners break down. So mm-hmm. foot and ankle health is huge in prehab. They're always working strengthening, balance, and mobility on their feet and ankles. Knees to the extent that you can work on knees, and then their hip girdle, yeah. their thorax, their spinal erectors, everything that breaks down everything that absorbs energy in that chain up and down your body, they are targeting that before or after every single workout. And they have scheduled deep tissue massages, sports massages, chiropractic appointments. They do them on the regular, not the way most of us would do it where, oh, something's barking at me. I better get in and see someone now. They're getting in and preventing it before it happens. Yep, that's a good point. Most injuries, especially chronic issues, either stem from some issue of the hip girdle or the hip itself, the hip joint, or they stem from some sort of lack of mobility in the ankle and foot, somehow with your contact point with the ground. So most of the focus happens in those two places. And that can mean anything from, and and now we, I'm we're not going to give prescription here, but I, I don't think we plan to anyways, but um, strengthening and mobility of the foot and ankle joint, and then stability and strengthening and mobility of the hip joint and all the muscles that insert in there, anything from your piriformis to even some of the glute muscles, your IT bands, the hip flexors that are insert up top. Um, those are the things that those people are spending probably, gosh, I mean, if anything, they're seeing like a physical or stretch therapist three times a week to work out the kinks. And then they're, they're work going in the gym and doing these small little movements that seem trivial yet are so important to just helping the overall control of their biomechanic. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I see people doing. Yeah, it is. If you take a look at where you normally break down and where the pain resides, it's not always correlated, right? Uh, I'm reading Richard Diaz's book right now, Training the Dark Side, and he's got this quote in there from a guy he respects and has worked with. And I'm going to butcher the quote, but the gist of it, the guy says something like, where it hurts is not where it's at. And it's it just struck me like how simple it was. Like that that's exactly it. We get our pain and then we address our pain. But the root cause is generally on the opposite side above or below. Mm-hmm. And pros address those opposite sides above or below before the pain even arises. They're mm-hmm. identifying where those common breakdowns are. And the great news is that they don't really do it alone. We've spoke to this a lot, but they have a team around them. LeBron James spends $1 million. I would bet the vast majority of that is on services, not items. It is on people, not goods. And these are the professionals that give them the advice and tell them exactly what will break down and then helps him address it before it gets there. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. You could just have the luxury and the money to just show up every three days to somebody who can tell you what to do, help you go through it, and just make you bulletproof. Wouldn't that Mm -hmm. be nice? But there's a lot of ways to research and do these things on your own and and I think the thing we've really been hounding on Bracken in these last few episodes is self-education. Yes. Correct. And if you're injury prone or you're not happy with your performances or you notice you're constantly fatigued or tight or you know you don't feel fluid when you run, you're all a good candidate to look at probably your prehab. Again, that can go anything from icing to heating to the mobility work to strength work, all of that stuff. And just to kind of back up what you had said about wherever it hurts is not where the injury is at. That is probably one of the more truer statements that could be made. For example, I think in our last training Tuesday, I mentioned like one of my legs is objectively longer than the other. 
and it causes my, my pelvis and hips to rotate to compensate. Now I'm having foot issues. I have lower tibia, lower leg issues. I've had Achilles tendonitis down low, but my issue isn't in my tibia or in my foot. My issue is stemming from my hip joint up top. Mm -hmm. Us talking about this is going to have me going back and completely revamping how I look at my next build. Um, and so that's just one example of that. I, I structurally don't have anything wrong in the lower left part of my leg, but I structurally and biomechanically have something wrong somewhere else. And most of you probably do in some capacity. Everybody's flawed a little bit. Bracken, what's your flaw? Tell me about it. I'm extremely tight. I'm extremely tight and I have a weak core because I do not work core the way I would prescribe others oh. to. I'm supposed to get you some heavy core work to do, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, my coach has been dragging his feet. Oh, man, I just remembered that when you said that. I'm putting that on my to-do list. Okay, well, thank okay. you. I okay. created this entire series to get to the point where I could shame you into giving me my my training. <laughs> it took three episodes. Shit, I can't believe I forgot. I didn't write it down. I got to write it down. I'll get it done. All right, Continue. What, what color are you going to use? Oh, I did get a pen. Did I tell you that? No. I got a multicolor pen, folks. I did it. I uh, And I didn't get it for myself. I have an athlete, uh, a client of mine in the gym, a personal training client. Her name's Kathy. I've never met a woman. Kathy, you listen to this. So this is your shout out, Kathy. And she hates running more than anybody that's ever existed. She hates it. She openly says that it is the stupidest, most unproductive waste of time. And she refuses to do it. And she listens to every episode of our podcast, <laughs> which is absolutely endearing. In the last episode, she heard me say that I keep meaning to get this four-colored pen when I go to the store. So Kathy decides to start keeping a workout log of her workout. She wants to write everything down. She's using the multicolored pens. And she went in, and she's not a runner at all. And she went in and got a three-pen pack, and she said, I don't need all three. And Kirk, I know you don't have yours yet. So she presented me yesterday with this perfect, like, expensive pen case. She opened it up and placed in there was my multicolored pen. So I have I like a pen that. now. Yeah, and, and the non-runner, Kathy, who listens to the running podcast, like, damn it, bless your heart, Kathy. Thank you. Kathy, pulling through for us. I'm going to write it in red, Bracken. I'm going to write your the to-do list to make your plan in red for muscle. All right. Keep going. Sorry, that was a distraction. I'm derailed. I was talking about my core. <laughs> you were talking about your core, and then I got on a Yeah, so because... all of my – now, my torn meniscus, that's wear and tear. I was getting undercut playing basketball seven years ago. That was – that was, I, I can't really point to an issue there, but my SI issues, my hamstring issues, um, even some of my ankle instability all stems from basically from middle of my hamstring to middle of my back. Yep. Yeah. Well, okay. There you have it. And you know yep. what you need to work on. And could all those be a, a potential factor in torn meniscus? Maybe. If it's changing my gait or the way I'm descending downhill, absolutely. Yeah. So what's interesting to me, we, we talk about LeBron James. Let's switch to the other side because you said, wouldn't it be great if we could all afford that? The opposite side of the spectrum there would be Eliud Kipchoge. We bring him up all the time because he's the greatest marathoner the earth has ever seen. He is a multimillionaire and he lives in essentially poverty in Kenya, training in a group setting with dirt floors and... Um, just basically this communal tribal aspect to his life. They take turns cleaning the facilities and grabbing water. And it, it, it's, it's really, really rustic. And yet every single training video that's ever been made about him, every documentary shows him giving this, his interview while his coach or one of the uh, people there is giving his legs a rub down. Mm -hmm. Always rubbing some sort of lotion on there and getting his hamstrings, his quads, his calves, his soleus, his Achilles. And they're just vigorously working his legs over every single day. 
Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. We can do he that. He is a millionaire. He doesn't bring in this crazy staff of scientists. They do manual stimulation. They do mobility. They do strength work. And I'm sure there's other stuff that goes on that they don't show, but they're just going with good old-fashioned massage every single day before and after workouts. We all can do that ourselves, or we can all find a partner to do that. Yeah, I agree with that. The tough thing about that is... Um is, you know, we only have so much like energy to give to things. And it's like, I give this energy to my workout for an hour and a half, and then I'm supposed to stretch. So I stretch for a half an hour. Now I'm two hours deep. Now I'm hungry and I'm tired and I put so much energy. And now I got to rub on my, my pressure points in the fascia for another half an hour. Like it can be done. Mm -hmm. It can, but it's going to take like a very diligent effort. And I think highlighting from what I understand, the two best people in our sport of OCR that do this hands down is Johnny Luna Lima and Ryan Kempson. You hear Ryan Kempson's, uh, if you go back to Ryan Kempson's episode and you want to talk about prehab, go back and listen to what Ryan Kempson is doing. If you want to have some sort of idea, his morning routine is like an hour of mobility work, range of motion, loose, loosening up the joints is Ryan Kempson's philosophy through somebody named Taylor Cruz, who is his coach. Um, uh, Rich Ryan just hired Taylor Cruz to help him with that. Johnny Luna Lima is following the same principles and I believe is working with the same gentleman as well. Johnny Luna Lima, I've stayed with the guy in, and been around him when he's doing this. And he runs through these range of motion things once or twice a day for a half an hour, grabs bands and wraps them around his foot and pulls on things and moves things and does all these interesting movements. And it's all prehab. It's all prehab. And guess who's been mostly injury free now the last two years? Ryan Kempson and Johnny Luna Lima. And that's probably not a mystery. They've both been running more than they ever have. Both had been injury prone in the past. I mean, Johnny Luna Lima was out for years with stress fracture, tibial issues. Uh, Ryan Kempson had, uh, what the heck did he have? Hip, his labrum, I think, fixed or his hip. He, he had, had hip surgery. Had, think, two hip surgeries. Okay. And those guys learned the hard way and they went to the prehab mo and they spend you know, I think Ryan Kempson said he spent one to three hours a day doing mobility and prehab. Like that's the kind of level we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 The true professional. And again, we're not preaching from a, a podium. We are not true professionals at this level. The true professional understands that the workout is not worth doing unless it is in the middle of your day, not time-wise, but energy-wise. It has to be sandwiched between prehab and recovery. Mm -hmm. Their workout is not worth doing if it, there's a cold start to it. They just don't do that. And it's not that they skip the workout. It's that it's inconceivable to them to do a workout without their level of preparation that goes into it. Well, and I argue if you're talking about true pros, and, and again, we aren't true pro athletes, but I do believe that there are some people in our sport that are as close as you can get. It, it, our sport isn't a money sport, unfortunately. So we don't have the luxury of spending a million dollars a year on rehab. But those two guys, I would say, I mean, Johnny Luna Lima is a professional athlete. That is all he is doing right now. Ryan Kempson does the coaching and some of that other stuff as well. But like, I'd say pretty close to a professional athlete. And they coincidentally are both on the U.S. National Series podium last year. Yep. Go figure. And who else is there? Ryan Atkins, shocker. I mean, it's just it's just enough said if, if we're going to relate it to our sport now, like Elliot Kuchobi, who not everybody knows, like, there you have it. Like no, no mystery there. Yeah. 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 And, and so I think the actionable pieces from this that we're going to give details on are if you can't have a team of professionals, how can you do this? And I think you find the tool or the modality that fits your schedule. So for me, mm -hmm. I know that I'm going to do my basic warm up each day before a quality day. 
I don't warm up well before easy days. Um, I have my basic warm up before a lift, but I do the same general warm up before upper and lower body lifts. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have my routines and I don't break out of them very often. But I do know that when I stay somewhere that with a buddy who has Normatec boots, I throw those on before every single workout. It's not just a recovery tool for me. It gets my legs moving. It gets blood moving throughout there. It gets muscles pushed on and starting that activation process. And I'll do that for like 20 minutes while I'm, I don't know, drinking my pre-workout and rechecking my workout log and catching up on my last emails before I start my workout or whatever. And now I get up and I'm already more limber than I was. It didn't take a team. That didn't take any time out of my day. I just did it while I was doing something. And I'm not saying Normatec boots are the way to go, but finding a tool, if it's foam rolling, if it's a stick, if it's a massage ball, if it's a um, a friend or a spouse or a partner that's going to be your hands-on stimulation, it's finding whatever routine fits into the flow of your day, rolling out while watching TV at night, whatever it's going to be that gets these pre-activation and these pre-workout, the prehab routine going. Yep, I agree with that. And I've searched this before on, on like YouTube and things like that. Um, there's a lot of douchebags that think they know what they're doing on YouTube, but there's also a lot of really good content on there. You could simply look up mobility work or prehab for runners, um, hip work for runners, ankle mobility and stability for runners, all that stuff can pop up and that's free content that you could go and you could search things like that to just get started and see how your body responds. Um, I have no relationship with Taylor Cruz. Uh, at all, but I know from top level athletes in our sport that he has a lot of respect. So maybe going and following some of his principles uh, or following him on Instagram might be a good benefit. Just seems like his athletes stay injury free and do sort of this voodoo weird prehab stuff that some reason seems to work. Um, but it make it your own. Hey, there's books out there. There's everything um, to educate yourself. I'm in the process of that. I am no proclaimed expert, Bracken. I know you are not. You're in the same boat as me. This is something we both need to work on. Um, and I'm planning, and I'm planning to do the education process with myself right now as well. The, the shared story of all athletes who overcame injury is that they decided it was the best thing that ever happened to them. And so that's the mindset I've adopted. So I'm reading through the book, Supple Leopard right now, which is going to take me a decade because it's a massive book. I've never heard of it. Really? No. It's one of the gold standards in the mobility realm. And I bought one of Taylor Cruz's videos. Oh, you did? Yeah. It was like 19 bucks or something like that. And it's a his like basic low level activation that everyone should be doing joint activation prior to working out. So I've decided like on my basic, like different income than LeBron James level, I'm going to invest in these ways to make this be the best thing that could have happened at this stage of my career. Have you, have you gone through um, like the routine yet that Mm -hmm. you have? How do you, how do you feel about it? Uh, There's nothing glamorous about it. This like it's very apparent why people fall off the wagon with this, because it's not life changing. This isn't the kind of thing that you do it one day and you just like, oh man, I'm gonna PR. It's it works away over days and weeks and months, years of bad habits, and it mm-hmm. opens up your body to its to its full capacity. But it's not an overnight thing, and it's not like this ultimate game changer in that you just unlock all this huge potential. These are things that you have to grind away at. And there's nothing glamorous in that. And I think that's why I'm so intrigued by it because mm-hmm. he's not selling this snake oil. He's selling a process in a routine. And we both know that process in routine are the founding building blocks of a pro athlete. 
Yeah, and that's the problems with some of the prehab stuff is it's so not satisfying and it's so not glamorous and it's so like finite and and minute at times, mm-hmm. the movements. And we're so used to feeling accomplished after our heart rates hit 160 and we're sweating and we're gasping. And and then we just patch job any sort of injuries that pop up. And, and so I think you're exactly right. You have to acknowledge that this is like a long-term investment. I know with, as we use Johnny and Ryan as examples, they didn't feel the difference in days or maybe even a few weeks. It was months in where mm-hmm. they were like, aha, but they stuck and committed to the process. This isn't something that you're going to wake up the day after your first bout of some sort of prehab or mobility work and think I'm fixed. It's a, it's a process. Every day builds on the day before, and it takes a while for it to set in. You nailed it. Everything we preach is process in our training plans, in our evolution as an athlete. Why should this be any different? Yeah. So are you ready for a mini rant? Yeah, I love rants. Can you can you end it with an analogy maybe? I don't know. I'll see if I can work one in there. All right. Okay, I'm going to start with an analogy. Yes, <laughs> give the people what they want. Uh, going back to your, our talk about your where your injury hurts is not what's causing it. Let's do with the car analogy here. If people are still not fully on board. When you hit a tree because your brakes failed, fixing your bumper does not fix your car, right? Like when yes. you when you rear end somebody, Fixing their bumper and fixing your bumper and straightening out the chassis, that doesn't change the fact that your brakes failed. We so often want to fix the damage that was done rather than the damage that caused it. Mm. And with a car, again, car analogies are great because they seem so sensical. Of course, you would fix your brakes. You don't want to keep hitting the tree. But how many times do we keep running into the tree in our training? How many times has your left foot or lower leg run into the tree, but your brakes are still misaligned? How many times has my core cost me hitting that tree, but I'm not fixing my damn brakes? Mm. Yeah, I'm very satisfied with that, Bracken. Thank you. I think we need to have a, a weekly Training Tuesday analogy made purposeful every week from now on because I just can't live without those. And it made perfect sense. Good job. <sighs> I got to start planning these. I'm starting to run out of things yeah. I can make up on the spot. <laughs> I don't know if you, I don't know you do pretty good so far. All right. So, All right, so you're going to tell us, you're going to go on a rant. I yeah. Believe, mini well. rant. For whatever reason, we have started as a sporting society to glamorize recovery practices. Everyone wants to post to their stories, to the Instagram, them in Normatech boots afterwards, or them getting cupping or doing um, some sort of hydrotherapy or cryotherapy or going to the Cairo and doing scraping and dry needling. And it's really glamorous for some reason. When I see that, all I think is, A, you're spending a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And B, how much of this could have been fixed? Like you're really proud that you're not fixing your brakes. Now, I'm not taking a shot at each one of those practices. There are There's a place for every one of those. But I'm taking a shot at the mindset that we're going to glamorize our recovery practices and trivialize our prehab. That people who sell prehab are snake oil salesmen. Like, oh yeah, doing all those fancy activation, like mm-hmm. activation's not a real thing. Our ancestors didn't stretch, lions don't stretch. Yeah. But you can go stand in, you know, freezing cold gases for 30 seconds and that makes you like Wonder Woman or, or Superman. I, I don't understand why we have gravitated towards throwing a bandaid on problems rather than glamorizing how good we are at not having problems. Well, we're just really good as a society of 
only paying attention to things once they've barked at us enough. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's, we're a product of that. I, you and I are a product of that. Yes. Um, everybody is. And I agree with you. I agree with you. You could use the car analogy. You could use the heart attack analogy. You could use any sort of uh, analogy in which things aren't going your way. And it's it's mm-hmm. foresight and preventing it from happening. I think also the other piece of this prehab stuff is, and which people don't really think about, and and I wish I had more tangibles to add to this. I just don't as far as like really poignant takeaways, but it also really eventually translates to performance enhancement. Mm-hmm. One, it typically will make you more efficient out there. So less costly to have a high output of work. Two, if it does manage to keep you injury free for longer, that allows you to build the appropriate fitness. Half of the reason I haven't hit a U.S. National Series podium yet, it's not because I'm not capable. It's because every so often I end up on my ass with a stress fracture. You know, I very well think I could stand on the top of a podium, but because I haven't been healthy for a long enough period of time, that is my limiter. Mm -hmm. So you look at things like becoming more efficient, biomechanically sound, which when you look at, again, I just want to use these guys since I started with them, Johnny, Luna Lima, and Ryan Kempson. They're two of the most fluid, smooth runners. They're efficient. They look good running. That's going to translate to speed. Staying injury-free is going to do the same thing. So like, you, it's like that damn investment like that you just have to like, like it's faith. You have to have faith and believe that this will provide you an outcome. And faith is blind, and that's how this has to start. Um, I don't really know what other what other way to say it. Yeah. Yeah, the greatest ability is availability. Being there on the start line is one of the greatest skills you can bring to the table. And mm-hmm. rehab does not get you to more start lines. It keeps you from missing additional start lines. Prehab gets you to more. Once you're rehabbing, you've already missed something. The best you can do is avoid missing more. Prehab wipes that out to start with. Now, I think it's probably strange that we're doing a disproportionate amount of time talking about prehab compared to the recovery we're about to talk about and then the mind space. Yep. But it's intentional. It's the overlooked piece to the professional puzzle. I've I've, I've completed what I want to say about it, but I don't want this to just slip into the folds of the rest of the episode. I want this to be the focal point. Yes, I agree with that 100%. And we also have in some way intermittently talked about recovery and mindset mm-hmm. in previous episodes, but the prehab thing was not. And as we're talking this out, Bracken, we um, we need to get somebody on here and talk more in depth in one of our episodes. I we should have Taylor on. Uh, if we could uh, talk about the prehab, I think that would be really, really helpful because it's easy to scratch your head with these pros do things episodes saying, I get the idea, but now like putting it into action, I still have some confusion on and and again, education is key to this, but I just think we could probably find Taylor or somebody to dive into that. So we should. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to move on to the recovery piece next? Yeah. I'm ready to do that. Yeah. So now that I'm done crapping all over recovery, recovery is super important. <laughs> You're right? crapping all everywhere these days. Outside, yeah. inside. <laughs> RVs, anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. So recovery is split up, in my opinion, to two things. There's recovering from workouts, and then there's recovering from pain and injuries. So we just talked about the prehab of injuries. Let's just roll right into what we do afterwards. Pros take their recovery and their rehab seriously from everything from a little bit of a niggle in their leg all the way through a major surgery. They approach all of them with the same type of of intelligence and perseverance. We all go under surgery under the knife at some point in our lives and we come out with a prescribed plan and we follow it because we're terrified. Pros do that after a sprained ankle. Pros do that after a slipped rib. 
Pros do that after they strain an adductor. They do it for everything. Yes, yes, they do. And I think the key when we're talking, so we're just talking injury recovery, not recovery from workouts specifically right now. And I think Jess O'Connell said this really well on our Friday episode is um, priority number one is getting healthy because if you skirt the process, then it just prolongs your recovery. She used the example of cross-training and doing something that would aggravate your condition a little bit, which would slow the healing process. Pros have that dialed into a science. I, for example, again, and this is me just walking into walls here, I go for a bike ride and I can feel my foot just a little bit. It's not like running, but I can feel it just a little bit. A pro, I don't. I have the luxury of time right now because we aren't racing soon and I'm in no rush. However, a pro would not be on the bike when their foot bothers them. A pro would be in the pool aqua jogging. A pro would be doing the cycle hand ergometer. How do you say that? Ergometer. Ergometer. Cycle ergometer. I froze for a second. My mind went blank as soon as you couldn't pronounce that. I thought, oh, <laughs> I I've like, never said that right in my life. That word? Um, but anyway, so point being is that pros will avoid and then do what is needed to get healthy instantly. That means wearing a boot around. That may be sacrificing a little bit of their fitness for when they come back, but it will get them on their feet the fastest. And that's like step number one, pros dealing with injuries. They don't want to be on crutches and they don't necessarily have to be, but if it saves them three days of their recovery, three days could be uh, instrumental and a big difference maker. So that's, that's number one when I think about pros and recovery. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's something that I didn't get for years. I would always see these NBA basketball players on crutches after rolling their ankle. And I always thought like, man, I've rolled my ankle. Yeah, I worked the next day. You know, I hobbled it mm -hmm. off. And, and I finally realized they're not being dramatic. They're being smart. Mm -hmm. What do we always say? You pay now or you pay later. Pros are masters at pain now. Yes, they are. Put the boot on. Use the crutches. Get in the pool. It maybe ruins your workout. You can't go grind for 90 minutes like you could on the bike, but it saves you weeks down the road. And you're exactly right. That's what pros do. The second thing, and this is a little out of order, but it's timely, I think. Those processes, whether it's off a rolled ankle or off a spinal surgery, it doesn't matter what it is. Pros take that rehab and it becomes their prehab. They integrate that into their daily routine. What we do, the general populace, is we rehab until we're healthy and then we charge ahead with our daily lives. Pros rehab until they're healthy and then they switch their rehab protocols to their prehab protocols and that keeps growing over the years. The prime mm -hmm. example I can think of this is my own mom. I should know better because I've watched her. She broke her back when she was in high school and she was in a full brace, like hips all the way up to neck. How, how did she break her back? Not so uh, she fell off the top of a cheerleading pyramid. Oh my goodness. And my mom was a stud athlete, sprinting, volleyball, uh, baseball, you name it. She was a stud. And mm. she was told, if you do not do your strengthening exercises, you're not going to walk, let alone get back to sports. And she became all state after her broken back again. So she did her core routine religiously and has not missed a day for 49 years since. My memories dating back as far as I can remember are my I coming downstairs in the morning and my mom's down on the tile floor in the kitchen doing her ab work and her lower back work. It's unbelievable her attention to detail. That is what professionals do. Their rehab becomes their prehab. Wow, that's impressive. 40 some years, huh? Yeah, she did in high school and she's 64 right now. If mom, if I got your age wrong, I'm really sorry. Does your mom listen to the podcast? She does. 
Every my episode. mom doesn't know. I can't get my mom to listen. I don't think she knows how to listen to a podcast. I wasn't going to ask any of my family members to listen. And both started listening before I even mentioned it. Uh, my sister listens, but I can't get my old man or my mom to listen. Um, one thing, if we're going to talk an acute injury and what to do, there's a number of school uh, of thoughts on this, and we've touched on it very briefly in like a Q&A episode. But I want to just touch on it maybe in a little more detail right now, and that is icing and things like that. Um, I don't, again, we don't need, we're talking more theory today, but this is just worth a note. If you have an acute injury that you need to get ready for, let's say the next day or a race tomorrow and you roll your ankle, ice is definitely the prescription. You want to reduce that inflammation just to get some mobility and some function back and be able to use whatever has been injured. However, studies show that basically icing and restricting blood flow to areas long-term slows down healing. So like chronic injury that you're recovering, sorry, like an acute injury that you're recovering from that's going to take weeks or months. Um, I mean, new age thought is no icing because our bodies swell up on purpose. Our bodies swell up and get inflamed to rush blood flow to an area to help heal and fix that area. So if you have a quick turnaround time and need to get ready for something right away and you might be able to get through it, sure, ice just to reduce the acuteness of the symptoms, but that's actually putting off long-term healing. So I just wanted to mention that, that little thing and the pros prescribed to this too that if they're in a long recovery process, they're allowing that inflammation to happen and working through it because that's just facilitating like the speeding up of their healing. And we haven't dove into that too deep, but I just think that's something that a lot of people don't really know. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. The guy who invented rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation, mm -hmm. redacted that. Did he actually? Yeah, he took out the ice. No, I didn't he know believes, that. Yeah, he believes in rest, but he believes in active rest. And he believes in compression and elevation, but he does not believe in restricting blood flow. He wants to promote it. Unless, of course, like you said, you're trying to turn around to the next big thing that you have to be ready for. And so my thoughts have changed on that over the years as well. Um, it's part of the reason I don't do ice baths very often. It's because I'm not trying to turn around for the next day's big effort. I'm trying to heal long term. Now, it depends what we're using the ice bath for. I'll do it after certain efforts. There's studies that, sh that people, I mean, you can get both. Uh, outcomes of this study, but there's studies that show that ice baths after a hard workout can actually reduce your adaptation from that mm -hmm. workout because our bodies respond to inflammation and they respond to yeah. breakdown. And so if we shortcut that process by ice baths, it may be good to get you ready for the race tomorrow. Maybe that's still subjective, but long-term it's actually kind of slowing down your, uh, your gains actually. Yeah, yeah. It, you're exactly right. And, and to use a, a very poor analogy, it's basically like cutting off the ambulance in traffic. And if you have an injury, if your buddy's injured, but he's got to get somewhere and you just parked in front of the ambulance, like, sorry, you can't get to him right now. He might make it to where he's got to go. He's going to be out of commission for a while. He's got to get back to the hospital after that. But whatever's pressing, he can quick go get it done as long as he doesn't die. Right. Sure. But, yeah. And that's what we're doing. When we don't let inflammation happen, we're basically stopping the medical process from happening, which mm -hmm. is good. Like if you're having a, if you're running the rounds at USA trials, You've got to run the, the 5K today and you've got to run it again in three days and you've got a hamstring pull. You better ice the crap out of that thing so that you get mm -hmm. it manageable and you got to race again in 24 hours. But if you pull it on the last day of trials and you've got an off season coming, you don't start with icing, you start with healing. Yep, I agree. I learned this from a guy, he was a doctor who happened to be a gym member at the gym I, I work at. And he slipped somehow when he was cutting his grass 
and his hand hit the engine of the lawnmower. It was a riding lawnmower. And the engine was running at multiple hundred degrees and he burned oh. the entire palm of his hand and all of his fingers. And the next day he showed up to the gym and he had a bubble the size of a softball erupting from his palm, right? It looked like something, I mean, it looked out like a science Jeez. fiction movie. And this guy was a medical professional. And I was like, man, what did you do? Like, how did this happen? And I'm like, and aren't you like, why aren't you popping that thing? And he simply said, like, my body knows what it's doing. And this is its way of healing this injury. I'm going to let that be until it takes care of itself. Why would I pop something that my body's natural defense is creating? And the same thing goes for anyways, injuries and inflammation and all of that. And ever since he said that to me with his palm, it looked so disgusting and huge. And it was impeding his life tremendously that whole week. He could have just popped it that day. And he did it. And a week later, he was back to his normal activities. And idiot Kirk would have probably popped mine and been messed up for a month. So like, there you have it. That's yeah. what it took for it to stick with me, to be honest, that one moment. That's a powerful example. It was, yeah. And most of us would reach right away for the anti-swelling agent. Yep. yep. So I, I I looked him up real quick because I, I couldn't remember his name, but he deserves credit for, for recanting his original beliefs. Gabe Merkin in 1978, he's the guy that introduced us to rice. And he, he took it back later. And I think that's really cool because not only is he a professional, but he was famous for that. Mm. And he, he, he kept researching. And so they, they came out with a new one, meat. <laughs> I did not know this. Movement, exercise, analgesics, and treatments. Okay. But anyways, the guy who made it famous to ICE afterwards finally said, you know what? I can't get on board with that anymore. Advancements in the field have shown me that there are better ways to do it. Meat doesn't, I don't know, sound as alluring for some reason, but I'm on board. slapping a raw steak on the eye. <laughs> uh, analgesics, analgesics. I wonder exactly what what, what the, the exact meaning or thought is there. I mean, I know what they are, but I'm curious there. Yeah, okay, we, can, huh? we can break down the meat later. But yeah, we can, okay, we can do that later. So I'm actually content with our brief talk about recovery uh, because From I'm injury. more concerned about, yeah, I'm more concerned about workout recovery days. Yes. But if you have anything left you want to add to it, I'm all yours. Not really. I just think touching on those school of thoughts were important Yeah. Um, because that, that rice thing and that, that general misconception is still very popular and we can all fall into that trap because that's all you've heard your whole life is to ice, ice, ice. So, um, so yeah, so as far as recovery goes after workouts, again, I think this is, this is again, the second tier, like I think pro athletes hands down better than the general athlete or everyday athlete uh, do prehab better. And then second, and not far behind prehab is is their rehab and recovery. So like, I guess what aspects of of recovery do you feel the pros are doing that you and I aren't, Bracken? I I would say that you and I, this might be our highest level of professionalism mm -hmm. outside of outside of every workout having a purpose. I feel like we do a very good job on prepping for our workouts, executing them, and then recovering from them. We may be lacking in professionalism in other areas, including performing at a professional standard, but we do a good job following those principles. That's the pat on the back I'll give us. Mm, I can't argue with that. Um, I guess I guess the, the, the way I want to lead into recovery, in my opinion, and from what I know, would be that recovery doesn't mean doing nothing. So that's like Bullet point number one, recovery in a lot of people's minds mean I'm going to take Sunday and sit on the couch and watch football and like relax. But relaxing, I guess, is what I'm really trying to say is not recovering. Yeah. 
This may be oversimplifying and being a little too heavy handed, but the same way that we talked about with Jess, that the goal of a workout is to do the least amount of work necessary in order to get the maximum benefit that we're shooting for. What pros tend to do is that on recovery days, they do the most amount of work possible in order to hit the recovery gains and goals that they are shooting for. They do not recover by sitting still. They move as much as they can without hindering recovery. Yep, exactly. That's a dangerous way of talking about it because it almost gives people permission to do too much. But that caveat is always there. You can't compromise the recovery. That's not heavy handed at all. I think that was that was appropriately handed. That's small hands. Everything's small, heavy you got in small my hands. hands. <laughs> uh, and you're and you're weak. So that's just a double yes. double edged sword there. Um, and what the heck was I going to say there? Uh, as far as the recovery goes, but we're talking about polarized training and that's the underlying theme here. So like when you're talking about staying active, we're not like, I'm going to beat the shit out of myself with a quality workout in the morning. And then it's better to me go run hard again in the afternoon. Cause that's going to help me run, like run better tomorrow. That's not the premise. We're talking about polarized 80, 20 training. And so for example, a pro athlete who will do a monster of a, a, let's say a track session, let's just pick a track athlete in the morning. Um, we'll probably spend a great amount of time afterwards doing mobility work and recovery. They're going to get off their feet for a little while, and then they're going to go and they're going to get the blood flowing again in the afternoon. And that could be anything from a walk to a bike to an easier, really slow run. Um, that would be part of their recovery process, but I don't know a single pro. I really don't know a single pro that would do a difficult workout in the morning and not follow that up in the evening or afternoon with something else to help already stoke that recovery fire. They'll finish off the recovery process the next day and then jump right back into quality work the following day. So recovery starts, like the workout's done, going and sitting on the couch, sure, is gonna be part of the recovery process, but that's only a small wedge of the pie, in my opinion. So, So they're starting the recovery process almost as soon as their quality workout is done. Yeah, pros are masters of knowing what a workout does to their bodies. They all know what their level of exertion they can keep without taking damage. And it's something that I think the everyday, the every man and every woman needs to do a good job of doing is exploring the stress levels that workouts induce. Our goal is always to increase the amount of stress on our system so that our body hypercompensates with its recovery processes so that we then adapt to a higher level. Your job is to find out what work do I do that does not interrupt that recovery process? And you have to know that it changes over time. A 40-minute spin session is not the same thing to a 20-year marathoner that it is to a 20-day 5K runner. Like if you've been running for 20 days, a 20-minute spin session or a 40-minute spin session is sufficient. If Elliot Kipchoge gets on a bike for 40 minutes, he's going to then hop off, continue his warm-up, and then go do his 48-minute run. Because that is his level of not stressing the system while still giving his body the chance to adapt. Yes, I agree completely. And so for a lot of people that are maybe newer to like working, really focusing on the recovery, um, I recommend first filtering it in uh, after like your quality day, if you're fortunate enough to get that in in the morning. Then when you get home from work or something, get out and just walk for even a half an hour. Something to just loosen the fascia back up, get the wheels moving a little bit. It's a really good place to start. Hop on a bike and actually go for like an enjoyable, casual bike ride. Something to just, you know, move the system again. 
that's the first place I tell people to start. I find if I add something secondary on the same day as a quality day, uh, that that actually sets me up really nice to fully get the benefit from the quality day the next day, setting me up even better for my or recovery day the next day, sorry, setting me up even better for a quality day. And that's a program that almost all pros su- subscribe to. If you listen to, again, Jess this last Friday on our episode, do you, did you catch when she said she works out two or three times a day mm-hmm. that she's doing something, right? Yeah, she said, I'm already doubling every day. I'm already doubling every day. Because yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, that's what pros do. And that doesn't mean she's working her ass off twice a day every day. That means she's working hard and then counterbalancing that with a lot of easy work to get her back to homeostasis. Yeah. And it was so telling that when I kind of sprung it on her at the end, what's the one thing that people could do to be more like the people that you encounter at the highest level, being an Olympian? She said, um, uh, I wish you had prepped me for this, but yeah, off the top of my head, do your hard days hard, show up for your hard days, get them done and easy recovery in between. You've got to recover. This is a, an Olympian who if she could tell you one thing, it would be take it easy after a hard day. Yeah, no shit, right? Yeah. And I think I think just the trap that people fall into is they think more work is going to make them more tired, mm-hmm. right? Like they're looking at it as actual work. And yes, you have to achieve a certain fitness level to like warrant like placing in like extra work is recovery in some capacity, but it's all scalable, right? The deconditioned athlete who can't run a 5k yet can still do their hard run in the morning and then go walk a mile in the afternoon, for example. But it's not more work. Like if you really follow polarized training and you really follow the principles of 80-20 running, like it seems like the more sessions you get in in between your quality days, the more easy sessions you get in, the more recovered you become for your next quality day. And that could mean a mobility session where you're not running or biking at all. You're working on joint mobility or a range of motion stuff. It just means like doing something again. And it just seems really consistent amongst the pros that that, that is the formula they prescribe to. It is. I, I use this analogy on, an, on a podcast years ago, but I liked it so much that I want to say it again. For anyone that's remaining who hasn't tuned us out about recovery yet, but still doesn't fully believe. Our body's reaction to sun is the most telling process, I think, of how our body reacts to exercise. If you go outside and you just bake in the sun for as long and as intense as you can manage, and then you come inside and you try it again the next day, you undo any sun tanning that you've that you've got. First of all, you spent too long out there. So even though it was the most impressive time that you could spend in the sun, and it left you the most depleted afterwards, it actually, you didn't absorb any benefits after the first hour or two. At that point, you were just doing damage. And then because you didn't take a couple days out of the sun, when you go out the next day, you're already fried, you fry further. And then what does everyone's skin do? It blisters and it peels. And any tan you would have accomplished is literally scrubbed away from your body. And you've got to Mm. start over. You didn't absorb any of that suntan. However, if you go outside in doses, and sometimes you go for a couple long bouts in intense sun, and other times you just do a couple sparing bouts, you stay in the shade, you develop a really nice tan because you never peel, you never burn, you never peel, and you absorb every amount of adaptation from that. You absorb it all. But if you peel, you have not absorbed it. And that's how pros approach this. Could I stay in the sun longer? Jess said it. She said, could I do more work? Sure. I I mean, I'm already doubling, but I could squeeze more work in, but staying out in the sun longer is not going to help me once I've already been in it long enough. Now, all I can do is get inside, put some aloe on sleep and try it again to a different capacity tomorrow. 
What a blessing to have three analogies so far in this episode already. What a blessing. And I'm going to argue that that that's that skin tanning analogy. And is that how you get your nice glow, Bracken? That nice golden tan of yours? No, I control the lighting in this room because if you saw me in person, there's no golden tan. <laughs> I'm a peeler. I'm a burner. Well, well, I would say that I like your skin tanning analogy more than your bucket of water analogy. Yeah. Coming back and forth. Yeah, I think that was uh, that was even more spot on. So congratulations. But you're but you're but you're speaking exactly exactly right. Those small those small doses in between, well, yeah, small doses in between large doses is the only way to kind of get yourself through without like peeling off the gains that you've that yeah. you've worked hard at. It's so true. That's a uh, it's really well said. Um, is there is there anything else recovery wise uh, that are steadfast that you can think of that the pro athlete is doing? Yeah, pros do not stick to a structured plan at the expense of their progression and their adaptation. Um, Renato Canova, he's the renowned Italian coach I talk about a lot who works over in Africa with world-class runners. And he has his hand in all these international programs. Um, He famously does not prescribe seven-day schedules because he doesn't believe in you always need the same recovery after this workout and that workout and just every Tuesday, Saturday, like how we do it. Every Tuesday, Saturday, we do our workouts. He does not, he refuses to do that for athletes because he says when they're ready for their next big day, we do it and not a day earlier. And that is beautiful. And it only works when you don't have a job in a life, right? When you live in a training camp, you can train whenever. Tuesday might as well be Saturday. It doesn't matter because there is no difference to a normal person you have to have your day scheduled on a seven-day week because weekdays, weekends, job, whatever. However, the idea that pros do not rush a workout, they know that the importance of avoiding getting a sunburn, but getting their sun in when it counts is way more important than I was scheduled to sit in the sun on Wednesday and it's Wednesday. I don't care if my skin's ready or not. If I still have a blister on my forehead, I'm sitting in the damn sun. They do not do that. So not only do they recover, they are willing to adapt their workout in order to ensure that the recovery is complete. I think the, I think the tricky thing about that though, um, is we don't always know if we're ready until we're in the workout. That's always a tough thing. It's really taken knowing your body and a pro athlete has the luxury of starting and then pulling the plug on it and pushing it back a day. We also have that luxury. Yeah. A lot of people are very committed to their workouts and grinding out on tired legs. And it gets a little muddy because there is a time and place to push through and all of that and yada, yada. Uh, But you can mimic those things. You know, again, some days you feel poppy in life and then you go to hit your workout and you're two reps in. You're like, not today. That's that's right now, especially with this time we have. Like, that's the time to push your workout back a day, uh, get more in tune with your body. And you're right. I mean, I don't gosh, aren't aren't most uh, clubs. I mean, I know they have set workout days, but they have different members of their their team on different schedules based on how fast they recover, how they peak. It's not like a one size fits all, even in that realm in training camps. Um, you see people doing di- work, some sort of hard work every every day, but it's not the same people because yeah. they're on different prescription. And you're right. It's hard to tell. But luckily, we are in an age where we're getting more and more technology pieces available that allow you to track this. Tracking your resting heart rate in the morning is a really valuable tool. I think every athlete should do it. I think you can get away without it. But if you are really concerned about knowing, am I truly recovered or not? Your heart rate variability is an important thing to track. If you think, all right, 
this workout always takes me two days to recover. And on day two, your heart rate is 12 beats higher than it normally is your average heart rate on a morning on a Wednesday when you should be having your next workout, you know that something's off. It might be that the workout is it hit you more than usual. It might be that it's interacting with a flu bug you're, you're catching in the moment. It could be that you're behind on sleep, but heart rate variability and other health trackers like that are super beneficial to people. Yeah. It's amazing how many people out there are using like their whoop strap to, yeah. I've never prescribed. I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge on it. Have you? I, man, if anyone from whoops listening, I'm sorry. I just don't believe it's quite there yet. I think it's a little buggy to be your gold standard, but it's a fantastic tool. I would say the greatest takeaway from any of that, I don't know if you need a whoop strap or not. If you have one, that's great. My sister used one. She loves it. I know Killian used one or still does, has for years. Hmm. But I think just taking your resting heart rate every single morning, you can do that with whoop and with that and with Garmin and things like that. You can track all night, which is cool. But first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, do that. For years, not years, probably a year or two, I did it with my phone with an optical sensor on the finger in the back. I'd wake up and the first thing I did was I just laid there without moving and I took my pulse through my finger. And you know now I have my armband or chest band that I can use, but I found it very valuable. And I started it when I moved out to altitude because I did not trust that I knew my body at altitude the way I knew it at sea level. And I knew workouts were gonna affect me differently. So I started tracking my resting heart rate every morning. Mm. I think, you know, the only, um, I guess, gray area with the whoop strap for me is as endurance athletes, we're all pretty heady. We're all cerebral. We all play these little mind games with ourselves at times. And it can be, you know, the mental side of things is probably the hardest side of things. And so sometimes those whoop straps can get into your head a little bit. Like I'm in the red, but I need to go today or it's race day and I'm not optimally recovered. Then it can be a cycle that people fall into. Like I knew it wasn't going to be a good day because my whoop strap told me. Then they go out and race like shit. But really, would they have otherwise? I I can't. I know it can be a benefit too. Like I'm in the green. I'm going to go pound today. But uh, you hear even guys that are using the whoop straps the night before a race, they don't wear it. Because they don't want that to mess with their heads. So you got to be careful with that too. I don't use Whoop for the same reason I don't use my lactate threshold testing on my Garmin watch. It's a great tool that is not 100% accurate and has the ability to damage me mentally. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't do it. Now, if someone from Whoop is out there and they want to set us straight on some of this, again, like, like everything I talk about, I am open to the conversation. I I don't write anything off. I want to explore it fully. So I don't personally use it, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't. It's just that you need to have, like Kirk said, your healthy approach to it. Turn it off when you have a race coming up and there's nothing else you can do to make sure that your hay's in the barn. Shut that thing off and go in confident. Yeah, exactly. Um, Do we have anything we want to add to recovery before this sort of natural segue into our last bit? No, I do not. All right, well, take us in then. All right, so Headspace. This is the place. Now, we talk about prehab is maybe the most important. This one, I could make an argument that this is the most important because really all of these are the most important. But this is, I would say, if prehab is one of the most underused issues or um, tools for athletes, this is the single most underutilized uh, tool for performance enhancement among athletes. The top of the pros it's rare to find someone who doesn't have some sort of mental coach, a sports Mm -hmm. psychologist, a mentor, someone who is in charge of making sure that they are as fit and tough mentally as they are physically. We have a few people in our sport that use them. In fact, some people share them. Uh, Nicole, Ian Hosick, the Atkins, 
they all share the same uh, sports psychologist. Mm-hmm. And everyone that I know who's a true pro, NFL, MLB, NBA, in some form or facet has a head coach. Yes, they do. Yeah. And it's, God, if you could, I don't even know if it's arguable that it's probably the most important component to like this whole process of training and racing where your head is at has as much of an impact on performance as how physically ready you are for that day. Um, it's, it's so true. And the amount of like silly things that you may think are, are stupid, like affirmations and visualizations and people, you know, meditating and walking themselves through the race that's going to happen tomorrow. And meditating is a very vague term for a lot of different ways you can get your mind right. But like all of these athletes are doing visualization uh, and things like that to get themselves prepped. Um, there's a, you know, on the old, your old podcast, Obstacle Dominator, Benny Gifford had Matt Fitzgerald on last week. And it was a pretty good interview. I don't know if you listened to it. I, I couldn't even bring myself to do it. I was so butthurt that we don't have him on and Benny got him. I just couldn't even, it was like seeing some girl I had a crush on dating my friend. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't be happy for them. Well, <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. Benny, I'm happy for you. Um, no, I encourage people to listen to other podcasts. There's a lot of good ones out there, but Benny did that. That was a nice interview. And Matt Fitzgerald started writing books because, and he's probably one of, if not the most well-known author on running. And, and he's got like 30 some books now, I guess is what he had said. 33, 37, something more than we know, not his mainstream ones. And he's always has a new one in the works, but this started because he was very, very physically gifted and his mental game was self-prescribed as a complete joke. He was weak. He gave up. He didn't push through. He chose to stop instead of move on. Um, And through his own research and his own, you know, like, I know I can do better. He found out how to become mentally tough. And he wrote a book called How Bad Do You Want It? Which I finished today on the drive-in. You finished on the audio book, obviously? Okay. Yeah. You, so, so you finished this book, How Bad Do You Want It Today? For the second time, I finished it today. All right. So you would say that's a good read then, huh? I think it's a must-have. Right. And and Matt Fitzgerald is proof. I mean, he didn't have any knowledge on how to make his mind stronger. And he went out, sought out experts, did, did his own trial and error. Now the damn guy wrote a book on it. And he says his strongest asset today is now his mind gain. And as an aging athlete, he's 49. Um he says, yeah, I'm 49, but I can still race with guys under 40 because like I have something in between my ears that they don't. And that just goes to show you like how important your headspace is. And yeah, I have not read that book, but it is now on its way via Amazon Prime. So I am I'm on my own way to learning more. In the past, I've always said that we are only as tough as our fitness allows us to be. Like if you have not put the work in, you can't access your upper echelon levels of toughness because you can't even get there. You're dropped out of the race so soon that you can't even do it. But I also firmly believe that we're only as fit as we are tough. Like it doesn't matter how high your fitness is. If you cannot bear down and use it, it's useless. It's like putting a toddler behind the wheel of a Formula One car. They've got all the same tools at their disposal as the pro racers are, and they can't access it. It might as well be one horsepower instead of a thousand. That's the way ours is. If we are not mentally dialed in, we might as well not have all that fitness underneath us. Yeah, then it's it's all a waste and it's a big tragedy of never seeing your real potential. And that is a sad thing, I think. It is. And yeah, the same way that people will go to Richard Diaz for stride analysis or go to their chiropractor for their posture analysis, a good sports psychologist 
life coach, um, anyone who works with the psyche of an athlete, they can identify the the hitches in your giddy up the same way that Richard would be like, wow, you have some issues, some imbalances in your form that we need to correct and it will unlock more in your stride. A coach for your mind does the same thing with your mentality. They will identify things that you have an imbalance in, an incorrect posture and a misalignment that when you correct that, it allows you to use all that fitness that you work so hard to build up. Yep. Yeah. We all knew like in college, the athlete who is like a, uh, a workout king or somebody mm-hmm. who could hang and then they never raced to their potential because they were in their, so their head so much. And you see that with competition, especially like it's, it's, it's actually astounding how many of us struggle with that and how many, how many athletes I, I can think of a half a dozen in the top end of OCR alone who publicly proclaimed race anxiety Pup, which is a, the mental game in itself, publicly have proclaimed it was detriment to their training and racing, have, have publicly been open about their struggles with their own mindset. And it's like, it's not just you, the average day athlete, it's it's everybody that deals with this. And arguably, the better you are, the more it's it can impact you. But it's, it's something that you need to work on, because if you don't get your mind right, uh, whether it's in your day to day or before race day, like you're just kind of chipping away at your potential. And that's, that's tough. I would say like, as far as like takeaways go, I know one of the simple ones I practiced in college a little bit and, and I've gotten back into it is just visualization. Uh, and again, I'm not like a sports psychologist, but visualization is simply like, like slowing your mind down, slowing your brain down and like, like really running through your head, probably close your eyes and running through your head, what you intend to do what you plan to do. Envision the heavy breathing after the start and the shoulders bumping you and somebody tripping and the grunting and and that cold feel of the monkey bars when your hands hit them. And like all those things, you just run through it in your head like it's like it's happening. And when you do the visualizations like that, what it allows you to do is it just allows your mind to just kind of be at peace and at ease and know the task at hand so you can kind of not hem and hoe over it once you're actually towing the line. So like vi- people who visualize will visualize things just as specifically, like what is that cold water going to feel like when I dive in at Tahoe? Um, and when you prepare your mind for that stuff ahead of time, that also leads to you to just be ready to handle it when the race comes and that can just reduce your anxiety. So that's like the biggest thing that a lot of people do. And that's different. And Matt Fitzgerald talks about this on the podcast with, with Benny, but that's a lot different than dreaming. You're not just like fat. You're not just like dreaming. I'm going to cross the tape first and it's going to feel so good. And you visualize the cameras in your face bracket. You just won the world champs. How does it feel? No, no, no. That's just called dreaming. That is not visualizing. Visualizing is like watching the steam come out of your mouth, like the breathiness, like the crisp air against your skin, like thinking about all of those things, slowing it down the night before a race. That's something that almost every single pro does that they don't talk about. And so I just wanted to dive in on that because I think it's worth talking about. It is. I'm a huge believer in visualization. I've done it my entire competitive life. And there are at least two or three very specific examples where I did something in competition solely because I had visualized it for a really long time. And it doesn't matter how foolish the examples are. I did it exactly according to plan because there was a plan in place. And all three of them were not plans that were dreams. They were plans that were a response to something going wrong in a competition. Mm. And it was specific. I just, 
over and over at night, I thought of like, man, when this, if this ever, if I ever find myself in this situation, this is what I'm going to do. And this you is how I'm going to do. Can you give us one of those examples? Uh, yeah. A, a foolish one is when, um, when I was a freshman in, in high school, we had our conference championship baseball game and, uh, we had what was called a, a suicide squeeze for baseball. Anyone who's not a baseball fan out there, a squeeze bunt is when the batter bunts with the intent of getting that runner who's on third base home. So the defense has to run and get the ball. And by the time they get it, third place is already sprinted. I mean, third base is already sprinted and slid into home before the ball can get there. So you're basically giving yourself up in order to, to score a run. And there's a, a safety squeeze and there's a suicide squeeze. A safety squeeze is where you take an extended, a secondary lead, it's called off third base, as the pitch is thrown and you wait for the bunt to go down. Because if you miss the bunt, you're screwed. You're caught in the middle of no man's land and the catcher just has the ball staring at you and you're out. So that's a safety squeeze. A suicide squeeze is where the moment the pitcher starts his motion, you put your head down and you sprint towards home plate with the knowledge that that batter is getting the bunt down. And if they don't get it down, you're screwed. So I got caught up in it. I was on third base. There was a suicide squeeze. I took off. He missed the bunt. And a couple feet from the, the plate, um, I had to slam on the brakes, but I had gone over this so many times. I loved getting in rundowns in baseball and I just always visualized what I would do. And I pulled it off. I got out of the suicide squeeze. I got to just walk across home plate. Place went nuts. We won the game. And that was the first time I did it. And from there on, I just started visualizing all these awful scenarios that could happen. And sometimes they played out just according to plan. But mm. what I found is that when I started going through injuries and I started having my setbacks, I started dreaming rather than visualizing. And I'd start thinking about winning West Virginia or winning Tahoe. Mm. And I think the correlation was that when I had put in the work, my body went, boom, we're visualizing what we're going to do with this work. And mm. when I wasn't prepared, all I could do is dream. And that sets yep. you up for failure. Yes, it does. Yeah. And there's a very distinct difference. Some would, some would misplace visualization for dreaming and dreaming for visualization, but, but they're so different. They're so different. I have a story with that. I am my sophomore year of high school. um, We had gone to state in the four by eight and I was the anchor and our first race of the year. I was the anchor again as a sophomore with three seniors on the team. So there was a lot of pressure on me and I had a guy coming up on the back stretch on me and I kept looking over my shoulder. I did the classic, what you're not supposed to do on the track. And I could feel him back there. I knew he was in there. And I kept looking over my shoulder and looking over my shoulder and he passed me in the last 50 meters and we lost the granted that guy was way beyond my ability level at that time. And I got done and my coach said, DeWitt, what the fuck are you? I mean, he chewed me out like I had never anticipated in my entire life. It was like one of the only moments I ever like basically cried as an athlete, right? And it was my first coach lashing out. Well, get this. Fast forward to the end of the season. It's the sectional meet and the top two teams go to state. I get the baton tied for second place. The first place team is out front and we go out like a bat out of hell. I take the lead on the guy behind me. So I'm running in second place with third place right on my heels. And I know that guy's back there. And I visualized all the way up to that, that this was going to be a tight race and to not look back. And when I have that urge to look back that I just need to feel him and hear him right behind me, but it's only one option. And that's look ahead, put your head down, pump your arms and go. And as we rounded the final corner, that guy was basically clipping my heels with his toes and everything in my body wanted to look back. 
And all I did was put my head down and bear it. And we crossed the finish line in second. And that guy pulled up on my shoulder and didn't have a chance because I didn't waste that millisecond of energy looking back to find security. And that was the first time I'd visualized before that race, mostly because I was afraid of getting chewed out again. But second, because I wanted, I knew that was a potential scenario. So the proof's in the pudding there. Like I, I think I would have lost that race if I hadn't anticipated how that would have felt. And it was like real raw feelings I was trying to mimic in my head, not a dreamy, I crossed the finish line and my team raises me up to celebrate. It wasn't that. And so I think that's a, those are good points to be, I don't know, shared, I think. Yeah, they are. And and this is a point where we might start to lose people again, because I'm not going to pay for a sports psychologist. It's, it's just too pricey. And then just like everything else, we turn to the next best option. Kirk and I play sports psychologists for each other a lot. My dad plays sports psychologist for me. My wife does. My sister, again, I'm surrounded by people who are pro athletes. I get some pretty good advice from people. Sometimes it's just they sit there and listen as I vent or work my way through my problems. Other times I just lay out my trash in front of them and they pick through it and they hand me back the pieces I need to hold on to and they help me get rid of the stuff I don't need. I do not have a, a mind coach. Maybe I should. Maybe my supporting cast is doing the best they can, but I need someone I don't know. Um, but finding a mentor, a consultant, a someone to commiserate with, someone that can that is capable of telling you when you're doing something wrong in a constructive mm -hmm. way and someone that you are capable of hearing them tell you you're doing something wrong. Because there are people in our life we cannot take criticism from. And there are people in our life that will not give us criticism. So we can't surround ourselves with yes men. True, true professionals do not have yes men. They have people who are able to tell them the hard truths in a loving, caring way. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of athletes, and I think we both maybe fall into this, is it's a roller coaster of emotion. If you find like you're one of those athletes who like one day you feel like you're on top of the world and you smash a workout, but then the next day your recovery run is slow or your next hard workout goes poorly and, and your confidence is just like this roller coaster that's exhausting. Like that can be exhausting. You're a really good candidate for like doing some like self-work there. If you believe in your process and you don't let one little bad workout or one sprained ankle or one, you know, missed workout really get into your psyche. Like you're probably doing some things right. You can always improve. But if you're one of those roller coaster athletes whose motivation ebbs and flows, your confidence in yourself ebbs and flows, then you're the athlete I would say like, buy the book, how bad do you want it? Or start your affirmations or visualizations or start some sort of process there to keep yourself more even because the up and down will suck the life out of you more than training will emotionally. And so those are the athletes and we all have some version of that. But that would be the athlete that I would say, maybe that's worth spending a lot of yeah. uh, emotional energy on. Yeah, the inconsistency is huge. I, I will point to, man, I do this out of pure love, but Cody Moat is one of the greatest OCR athletes we've ever seen. And he is a two-time Spartan Race World Champion. Mm -hmm. I know you're going. Three, if you count his Ultra Beast. Cody would be at least one or two more championships richer if his mind game was as strong as his fitness. And mm -hmm. Cody is as tough and as smart and as caring as any man I've ever met. He is like a true man, but he deals with performance anxiety to the likes that most of us can't imagine. Um, talking about waking up in the middle of the night with his heart rate at 178 the night before a race because he can't get it down. We're talking about not one second of sleep the night before a race None. at times. We're not one 
second. He does not fall asleep and still goes to the, the start line. Correct. Yeah. That's uh, as bad as it gets. Part of the reason Cody Moat did not go to many races throughout the tail end of his career is because it was so miserable for him to do that. I look at Ryan Atkins on the other end of the spectrum. Ryan's one of the most content athletes I've ever seen before a race. From the very first world championship where I saw him stroll up with his sweatpants rolled up to his knees and flip-flops and strolled to the athlete briefing. Didn't have a care in the world and he went out and took second the next year. And a lot of people point to Ryan as saying, well, yeah, he just never got over the hump. I would say Ryan took second every single year because he was mentally tougher and mentally more dialed in than everyone else in the world. A lot of people say, well, he should have won. I would say he shouldn't have taken second every year. Right. He's too strong. He's not fast enough. He's he's like he doesn't live at altitude. There's a lot of things you could point to. And why does he take second every year? It's because he gets more out of his body than I think just about anyone else in the sport. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he has a sports psychologist and Cody never did. That solidifies for me his last year in Tahoe oh. where he came off of two weeks of no running at sea level in Fiji doing the eco challenge. He was exhausted from no sleep and wasn't training any high energy uh, systems. Uh, he was working aerobic the entire time, basically. And then he goes and climbs a mountain at elevation and takes second place. That There is no way anybody else in our sport would have accomplished that without question. And I have to believe that goes to his mind. Yeah. So I don't want to belabor the point and that's not throwing Cody under the bus. It's saying, look what he accomplished despite what he dealt with mentally and imagine what he could have done if he was at peace. Mm -hmm. Matt Fitzgerald actually talks about in his book, this, um, the different effects that mentally there's the audience effect where in constant studies, they show that when someone's watching you, you do better. And if they're cheering intermittently for you, you do better. And if they're cheering for someone else, they do better than you do. Like it, there, there's very tangible performance gains from audiences cheering for you. But there's another one where, and I'm going to blink on the name of it, of course, right now when I need it, but it's basically the success um, effect where once you've achieved something, you're more, more capable of doing it in the future. Even mm -hmm. if you're not necessarily better than the people you're around, if you pop a fluke race, we see this all the time. Someone pops a race and then they just do that for the rest of their career. They just expect to be at that level and so they are. That's what visualization can do. A strong mind coach paired with great visualization gives you actual experiences that you've never experienced. If mm -hmm. you can visualize clearly and strongly enough, you can actually have that success effect. And that's not the name of that. It's just the placeholder word I'm going to use. So don't Google that. But you can get successes without actually living them. And if you believe in them strongly enough on race day, your mind and your body actually feed off that. Yeah, I like that. And there's the other approach and you could call it, let's just say the Ryan Kent approach. You know, you a lot of athletes run around with fake chips on their shoulders and and they've realized that's part of their mental process to keep their their head in the game. Oh, I'm a I'm a 50-year-old woman who all my family and friends don't think I can complete a Spartan race. Fuck that. I'm going to go show them I can. And nobody may be thinking that. None of your friends may be thinking that, but that's what it takes for you to get out the door every day. Ryan Kent thinks that everybody's a naysayer and that he's going to prove all of them wrong. And that keeps him going every single day. And you probably have something in your life that may be a half truth that you can really key in on. And you'd be surprised what those little matches can do to like really create like a big fire inside of you on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and most pros have that in some facet. Yeah. The two mm -hmm. most powerful performance enhancing emotions are joy and rage. 
Yeah. Rage can be just as destructive <laughs> as it is powerful. And so most people would tend to steer you away from that. But regardless which path you take, you are at your best. You're the closest to your ceiling. Performance-wise, when you have one of those two, and a good sports psychologist gets you to get into those modes on command. Yeah, help you access it. It's there. You just have to you just have to take the right path to get there in your mind. And then I mean, God, I think of some of my best performances, and sometimes they they are they are haphazard and suddenly you're in the middle of a race and it just happens and you can't predict it. But like I think of where my mind goes and it's ready for blood. And it doesn't even matter at who or what. All I know is like death bestowed upon anybody who tries to beat me right now. And it's a, it's an interesting thing. And I wish I knew how to access that every day. Yeah. How many times have I said the scariest athlete to race against is the one who you know you can't break? They're the mm -hmm. ones that will not give up. That if you make them hurt, they're just going to smile at you and say, okay, let's see how far we can take this thing. You, you yep. want to hurt? Let's hurt today. That is the scariest thing to compete against. And that is what you can become. We all have the capacity to become that person. A sports yep. psychologist is going to get you there. Or a book, hopefully. Yeah, a book. Or something. Yeah, and that, that I think that's how I want to end my piece here is everyone should do a little homework. They should find an athlete that they know is at the highest level of professionalism. I'm just going to stick with LeBron James. There have been multiple articles written about how he takes care of his mind and his body. Research them. You're going to find out. His million dollars plus per year is broken down into training equipment at his own house so that he can get in what needs to get done. Prehab, rehab practices, doctors, his nutritionist, at-home cooks, people that travel with him and prepare his food, all of those type of things. You identify, you list out everything he does, and then you create your column. And you say, what version of that can I apply to my life? Can I have someone who travels and cooks with me? No. Okay, then can I have someone that cooks for me before I leave? Maybe, maybe not. Can I meal plan myself and have my grocery store identified when I get there, what I'm going to buy? Yeah, I can probably do that. And you go down your list and you identify what do the very best do and what version of that can I approximate into my life? Yeah, I like that. One thing I, I like about LeBron and him as your, I don't know, the guy you're using as a comparative is he was actually set up to fail because he was so good as a young person. He didn't have to develop the processes. He wasn't forced to because he was so talented. He didn't have these processes in place when he was younger because he didn't have to. And he has developed them all over time, over the years. And he would be the classic guy who comes out hot and then never is to see yeah. be seen again. So I'm always extra impressed with somebody who that's when talent meets hard work meets like love for sport meets everything is you yeah. get somebody like him and he's actually the exception not the room when they have a lot he is. so i just like him as an example because he had to he had to recreate that as he developed as an athlete because he did start with that he's the rare athlete who's probably the best athlete at what he does pure athletic standpoint he might be the best basketball player i've ever watched who also would be a fantastic coach because he's such a student of the process and the game there are yep. very few people who are the ultimate freak genetically who are also a freak mentally. Mm -hmm. I have this theory of attribute points. Have we talked about this, Kirk? We have not, no. All right. So I think that human beings are built like char playable characters in a video game. Whether you are playing a, a racing video game or a sports video game or a fighting video game, every character has attributes, points that are spread out over all the categories. But there's always a limit. Everyone has to work with the same attribute points. 
And so there are dips and there are drops. For every spike you have, there's a drop somewhere. And very often, people with really high spikes in physical tools are lacking mentally or are lacking with motivation or in desire or passion. Very rarely do we see the people like LeBron James who a lot of their attribute points are in complementary areas. He's a freak mentally. He's a freak physically. He's a freak with his passion and his drive and his work ethic. But with the help of a team around you, with your prehab, with your rehab, with your recovery, with your sports minds around you, your psychologist, whether it's a friend, advisor, coach, you can get as close as you can possibly be to maxing out your attribute points. Yep. Which is exactly what we kind of wanted to get across with the whole pro series is you got to know your ceiling and you got to know what it looks like. And then you have to try to mirror that the best way you can for yourself. And, and I would just say on the, on the mental side of things, and I've already talked about it, but the best place to start would be to do some, some visualization. If you don't have any books yet, if you don't have the ability to hire somebody, just sit and think about what you intend to do and how that experience is actually going to feel and be and then go out and see if you can do it the way you visualize it. That'd be the best way to start as anybody. You could do that right now before you go out for your run today. Like that, that's that's probably step one. And that doesn't take any money or any know-how. So that's 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 what I would say. Yeah, I like it. We always say you don't do anything on race day for the first time. You do it in training. So you start this in training. So this whole series, what do pros do? We've taken three episodes to get here, but the answer is everything all the little things. They do it all. They do it correctly and they do it consistently. There's not one takeaway. Prehab, rehab, head games, recovery, every workout for a purpose, preparing for your workout. If you nail any one of those things or even half of them, you don't change as an athlete. There's no magic bullet here. The secret is every single day doing the little things right for days and weeks and months and years and decades. That's what pros do. Yep, it's so true. And and looking at a big goal and getting caught up in the 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 sheer scale of that goal is very daunting and can leave you feeling very lost. So putting small tangible goals and action items to every day is exactly what the pros do and exactly how they get to their ultimate big goal. So all these little things we've kind of outlined over the last 3 episodes. Yeah, maybe if there's one thing pros do is they love and embrace the process. Yep. For we sure. love results and finish lines. They love the process. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can start. And the way to fall in love with the process is to make it habitual, yeah. to make it, you know, could could you get through your day without brushing your teeth? By the end of the day, your mouth would feel filmy and gross. And you'd be like, I have to brush my teeth to feel better. Like you've developed that because you know what it feels like because you've, you've done that every day for your entire life. The same goes with all these little steps. Like you can fall in love with the process uh, just because just like you can't go a day without brushing your teeth. Cause you know how shitty that would, it's kind of a weird analogy, but there it is. What's that beautiful analogy. It's my first of trying the training wheels are on guys. That's a great one because you know what it feels like to have brushed your teeth regularly. You feel how awful it feels not to do it. I love it. Cue music. <laughs> Thank you.